trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's get things rolling. Welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think multiple times a week. I know it's it's probably upsetting to some people, but so far nobody's reached out and tried to cancel me. Knock on wood. Why would we get together and revel in wrong think? I'm glad you asked. Because, very simply put, there is a battle going on for your mind. Now, look, I'm not so intent on, I want to win that battle, and you're only going to believe what I tell you and nobody else. That's, that doesn't work for me. The battle for your mind is something that, uh, that is, is far too important to, to hang it on the, the likes of a sorry lout like me. I'm just here to encourage people to question the propaganda, to question the narratives that are being fed to us, and, and with good reason. Many times the people who are feeding us these uh, these particular stories that we're supposed to believe don't really have our best interest in mind. They just want us to to move, they want to move the herd in a direction of their choosing. And so uh, I'm here to provide some uh, some options. I have a lot of uh, great resources for wrong thinkers. You can check them out at my uh, website, thebrianhideshow.com. Most importantly, though, I just want to give you some encouragement that, number one, you're not alone. If you get the sense that, wow, something is really out of balance or there, there's something that just doesn't add up. And I feel like I feel like I'm being lied to. I'm here to assure you, yes, there are, there are plenty of people working to manipulate your allegiance or to win your point of view and win your mind over. I'm encouraging you. To make the choice for yourself where that allegiance goes, to be willing to look at, at, at situations and issues just a little more deeply. In other words, uh, if wherever possible, maybe take it out of the realm of politics so it's not just a simple power struggle. What's the principle that's at stake? Now, some people are like, Brian, I want my red meat. <laughs> I, want, I want you to make me angry. I want you to tell me who I'm supposed to be angry about. You know, I used to do that. And, and it's a very effective way to, to raise a large, engaged audience. But I don't think it accomplishes anything particularly good in that nobody's mind ever changes. Nobody ever stops to reconsider, well, maybe there's more to this than what I'm being told. So I take a little bit different approach, but I'm thankful that you've uh, given it a shot. You're checking it out. And, and I hope you find things that are worthwhile. I hope you find that, uh, that not only you're not alone, but there's courage and there's camaraderie to be found when you revel in wrong think with me and with, uh, with my listeners. Let's begin. Here's the question to start us out. When did woke or where did woke America get the idea that politics is everything? In other words, at what point did corporate America and these big companies feel that they have to be politically invested. They have to tell you where they stand. They have to signal their virtue to the world in terms of political correctness. I know I'm not the only one who has wondered about this, but it's getting bad. I mean, it's getting to the point where, you know, the the necessities in life are now becoming 
close to dependent upon, well, do you hold the proper attitudes? Because if you don't, and if you don't show proper submission and compliance to what we tell you, if you don't bend the knee when we say, why, you can't fly on our plane, you can't bank with us, you can't purchase food in our store. I think it's a, it's a little glimpse of, uh, of America sliding a little bit further into that Weimar uh, Republic mode, much like a very, very well-developed um, and well-educated nation did back in the 20s and 30s in Europe. I know that makes people angry to think there's any comparison, but I, I'm, I'm not saying we're all in danger of becoming Nazis. I'm saying no. The direction we're moving, the intolerance, the decadence, it's all been done before. And people wonder, how did they lose their grip? How did they ever lose their perspective such that the Third Reich could be built right there on their backs? And by the time they realized, ooh, this is, this is getting kind of uncomfortable, it was too late. It was too dangerous to speak up. We're not quite at that point. But if you're paying attention, it's, it's approaching. And it's approaching with, with much greater speed than even, even those of us who have been paying attention thought it would. There's a terrific article that was published last week. Richard Morrison is the author. This was on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. How Corporate America Got Woke. And this is actually the review of a book called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Steve Sukup is the author of that book, and he explores the rise of progressivism as a cultural force. But he also connects the dots and shows why corporations increasingly have started to take sides in politics. So Richard Morrison starts by saying, how did corporate America, long considered one of the most conservative American institutions, become a lead protagonist in a culture war over all manner of progressive activism? We now have a routine spectacle of corporate social responsibility seminars and environmental, social and governance or ESG conferences where widget makers of all kinds commit to promoting climate activism, identity politics, union labor and sundry other causes. Somehow, selling an honest product at a fair price seems like a secondary concern in a corporate America increasingly focused on an array of stakeholders with such diffuse boundaries as the local community, the global environment, and society at large. How did we get here? Finance professional and political analyst Steve Sukup gives us a fascinating and in-depth answer to his disquisition on modern politicized investing, the dictatorship of woke capital. Now, the first half of this book is a high-intensity sprint through about a century and a half of intellectual history that name-checks everyone from Adam Smith and Karl Marx to Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Adorno, Saul Alinsky, and Milton Friedman. In Sukup's telling, the shift began when John Hopkins University was founded in the image of Germany's Heidelberg University in the late 19th century, and progressive political theory began to grow in popularity in the United States. The same trends later accelerated when a new generation of continental Marxism hit the U.S. in the mid-20th century. Now, these developments brought about a revolution in how left-leaning theorists viewed the functions of government and other large institutions like corporations. First, in the progressive view, neither the old aristocracy nor liberal democracy were equipped to achieve the necessary goals of society. Rather, a professionally educated elite of administrators and bureaucrats was needed. This was the progressivism of theorists like Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Crowley, and John Dewey. 
They carved out a large realm of governmental authority for administrators, but still considered their role to be outside of politics itself. Now, eventually, however, political scientists and management experts led by academics like Syracuse University's Dwight Waldo decided that expertly implementing democratically chosen policies was no longer enough. A subsequent generation of experts would be expected to substitute their own ethical and philosophical standards for those supported by voters. As one of Waldo's colleagues would later put it, public servants should become active, informed, politically savvy agents of change. This is the recipe of what critics of big government have come to call a permanent governing class. Civil servants with effective lifetime tenure collaborating with like-minded activists outside of government who place their own judgment ahead of that of the voters and their elected representatives. That sure sounds like what we've got. Yet the, the trend of enlightened university graduates turning institutions toward progressive goals wasn't confined to government agencies. The same logic would apply eventually to the management of corporations as well. So in this book, Sukup recounts how at the time... The same time that American scholars of public administration and management were expanding their disciples. Self-proclaimed radicals like Antonio Gramsci in Italy, Georgi uh, Lukács Lukács in Hungary, I know I butchered his name, Max Horkheimer in Germany, were attempting to revive Marx's reputation and influence by explaining away many of Marx's theory's failed predictions. And when the German academics of the infamous Frankfurt School went into exile in the United States during Hitler's rise to power, they began to exert significant influence on academics and writers in the U.S., culminating with the unlikely pop culture celebrity Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse was widely associated with the, in the popular imagination with political movements in the 1960s, from student radicalism on college campuses to free love on communes and beach blankets across America. And while Sukup argues he was less of a direct influence on left-wing politics than some have given him credit for, his ideas about the evils of capitalism and bourgeois society were very much part of the liberation politics that swept much of the world in the late 60s and early 70s. When soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell lamented the increasing anti-business influence of radical leftists in his 1971 memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, one of the few people he criticized by name, besides Ralph Nader and Eldridge Cleaver, was Marcuse. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. But this is some terrific historical context for how the corporations became so woke. It didn't happen overnight. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We're getting learned today on where woke corporate America originated. Because there was a time, believe it or not, you know, if, if you're young, you may not remember this. There was a time when uh, when large corporations and businesses actually focused on creating the best possible product, gaining the largest amount of market share, and, and really didn't bother. There, there was no need for them to go out and politicize what they were doing and otherwise, you know, become punishers of people who didn't hold those same political views. So this article by, uh, G- uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Richard Morrison on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, 
How Corporate America Got Woke, a review of the book The Dictatorship of Woke Capital by Steve Sukup, shows how that progressive woke or cultural Marxist mentality found a home in American business. And it was very interesting to hear that, you know, some of the names that he names, like Herbert Marcuse, pop culture celebrity, were very influential. Now, this revolution, which kicked off in the late 60s, early 70s, held that not only was a capitalist economy inherently exploitative, that's classical Marxism right there, but the entirety of modern society is repressive and dehumanizing with everything from nuclear family, organized religion, and formal schooling conspiring to circumscribe our essential natures and limit our infinite potential. Gosh, that sounds a lot like what we're seeing today. So with so much of the system losing credibility, it was not surprising that public attitudes toward business, ambivalent even in the best of times, turned more hostile. Now, unfortunately for people with anti-establishment attitudes, there are never enough university fellowships and socialist newsletter editorial positions to go around. Well, over 70% of Americans work in the profit-seeking private sector, once we subtract everyone who works for government agencies and nonprofit organizations. So this means anti-capitalist ideas are coming from inside the building. And this conflict in which many people at both the entry level and management level work at companies, about which they feel morally ambivalent, isn't entirely a product of progressive ideology, but the academic theory behind it certainly didn't help. Richard Morrison says his Competitive Enterprise Institute colleague, Fred L. Smith Jr., has written extensively on this problem. Business leaders afflicted with an inferiority complex over their chosen profession and feel the need to buy back their moral standing in the world with leftist virtual signaling. The second half of the dictatorship of woke capital catalogs a series of controversial activist campaigns by some of the biggest names of Wall Street, Apple, Disney, and Amazon. Now, the issues are varied, but the overall trend is nevertheless worrying. Rather than concentrating on what they know best and staying neutral in the culture wars, major companies have hitched their brands to one side of a contentious political divide. And the verdict on whether this will ultimately be good for business is still very much uncertain. Specific issues aside, the influence of all those progressive and Marxist scholars the book, the book documents can be seen in the modern claim that no institution should be outside the political realm. And by the way, just to review, this is just a quick review for, for those who wonder, what institutions are we talking about? I can think of seven major institutions in, in a healthy society. Government is one. Family, community, church, education or academia, business, and media. Of those institutions I just listed, how many of them have become fully politicized? It's scary, isn't it? How many of them have a big target on them right now to become more politicized? Maybe this is one of the reasons why we need to do away with the nuclear family. Because the nuclear family can handle a lot of the issues and problems that uh, we're trying to outsource to government. Sukup writes, this battle is between those who believe that politics is and should be the overriding force in all human interactions and those who believe that politics is just part of the human experience, a part that's best kept as narrow and limited as possible. I don't know about you, but I, I know very clearly where I fall on, on that particular issue. 
Richard Morrison says attempting to turn every corporation in the world into a political combatant will not make the world a better place. One doesn't have to be conservative like Sukup or a free market warrior of any description to appreciate that. So this raises the question. Will it be here to stay? Well, won't capital be here for the long term? I was looking over an article by Peter C. Earle. This was uh, published over the weekend on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. And he says, no, it's going to become a relic. Let me share a couple thoughts from his article. He says, in a market economy, consumers vote with their dollars. So the survival and growth of a business depends pivotally upon how effectively they convince their customers to buy their products over those of their competitors. But recently, consumers seem to expect a new product in addition to what they were already purchasing from firms, corporate consciousness, in particular, a decidedly left-leaning consciousness. But he says it's not entirely accurate to claim that consumers have compelled business to get with the times more precisely. The sensibilities of the public have mostly, through the media and polling, bled into corporate boardrooms. Big businesses have in turn doled out value statements. Some are praised, others pilloried. It's a chicken or egg case. Did the consumer demand woke capital? Or has the corporatist, desperate to maintain market share and boost public perception of their firm, made woke capital the law of the American economy? And he goes through this and points out, in reality, woke capital is nothing new. On the individual level, you had individual or early industrialists, rather, like Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller engaged in corporate philanthropy, donating large shares of their fortunes to charity. In fact, in the 1940s, businesses themselves started supporting charitable causes. But the idea of corporate social responsibility entered the mainstream back in the 70s when the Committee for Economic Development pushed the social contract model stating that businesses function as a result of public consent and thus leading to an obligation to serve societal needs. This also ties to the rise and spread of, sha- of I'm sorry, stakeholder rather than shareholder stakeholder theories, which no NBA program today would dare omit. By the way, that same model outlined three duties of businesses providing providing jobs and economic growth, fair and honest treatment of workers and customers and improving the conditions of the surrounding community. Isn't that something? So this uh, present ascendance of woke capital then has been less of a rise and more of a continuation, a twist really on existing tendencies. And it wouldn't be so unpalatable if it weren't so rife with hypocrisy. Lofty moral standards selectively applied. And by the way, he's got some great charts that back this up. Steps and missteps have, have been made. One, one such blunder came in the form of McCann ad agency's Black Lives Matter blunder. In June last year, the firm asked artist Chantel Martin to paint a BLM mural on the storefront of McCann's client, Microsoft. The email specifically requested that Martin finish the piece within a few days while the protests are still relevant. Martin teamed up with other black artists who'd been approached by McCann, eviscerating the agency in a letter that decried the the disingenuity of activism with an expiration date. So with all that in mind, it must be said that not every business simply postures for the sake of posturing. In the early days of corporate social responsibility, Milton Hershey of the Hershey Company built far more than just production facilities in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He built civic centers and cultural institutions that continue to support the community to this day. And in the woke capital era, plenty of organizations have taken up the helm of well-intentioned, effective societal change. Chobani, 
A leading Greek yogurt brand has made tangible steps towards social responsibility, from actively seeking to hire refugees to investing in social entrepreneurs in order to encourage innovating for the greater good. Chobani's impact statements are far more than just platitudes. But these examples are in many ways the exceptions rather than the rule, according to Peter C. Earle. Far-reaching social and political turmoil has prompted businesses to feel as though they must comment on current issues. But that talk has hardly translated into any meaningful change. Social change is expensive. Woke capital is difficult to back. And as such, few businesses have put their money where their mouth is. The voluntary cooperative commercial engagement is a center for gravity for civilization itself. That hasn't really occurred to them. And it doesn't make a flashy enough campaign. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Monticello College, HSLAmmo.com, and also by Pure-Light.com. By the way, I've been using their light bulbs, and they are really remarkable. They work as advertised, especially the part about getting rid of cooking odors and things like that. Fascinating stuff. You can find them all in the in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Links for each one of these sponsors. You can drop them a line. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. In fact, you can subscribe to the podcast. If you're so inclined, you could also become a supporter, a monthly supporter of this podcast and broadcast and it could be a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever, whatever you feel you could do. It's greatly appreciated, and it definitely helps me to focus on finding great information and sharing it. Speaking of which, <clears throat> I'm sharing right now an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from Peter C. Earle. And he's talking about how woke capital is destined to become a relic. Now, this is written through the eyes of a of an economist. So there are some good technical economic terms here. It's not enough to it's not enough to make me, you know, uh, reach for the bottle of aspirin. So I'm thinking you'll probably get through it just fine as well. But it's interesting to read about the economic calculation with woke capital. And whether it's it's seen as as something more than just, you know, a, a very visible virtue signal or if it's actually doing anything to make these companies better in terms of uh, how they manage their assets. Because it seems like a shift has taken place. I like how Peter C. Earle comes back to the question of, is it a fad or is it principle? He says, though consumers seem on balance to prefer activist firms, companies largely miss the mark. For instance, a 2018 survey covering 35 countries showed 64% of consumers would gladly reward firms engaged in activism of some type providing that corporate consciousness has become an essential part of many companies' bottom lines. However, a 2020 opinion poll conducted by Gallup in the United States indicated that public confidence in big business was laughably low. Only 19% of respondents reported having a great deal or quite a lot of trust in large firms. Sentiments have been tepid for decades now, with confidence lingering around the 20% mark since the early 2000s. And the leftward shift of business has especially alienated Republicans with their satisfaction with big business following falling rather to 31 percent. That's a 26 point decline since 2020. 
So whether corporate America's commitment to woke capital will last, that remains to be seen. But one questions, who truly prefers this state of affairs? Mr. Earle says companies feel obligated to offer value statements to their customers, despite often having records of conduct contrary to the socially acceptable view. Consumers sense the game being played and accordingly chafe. Structural changes, most of which involve more opportunities and less state interference, are desirable and attainable, and the lack of genuineness here suggests unsustainability. So rather than a sign of the times, he says the embracing of woke capital may simply come to be a relic of the times. You know, the thing that surprised me as as I was reading these last couple of, of articles was, first of all, how far back the genesis of woke capital has, has gone. Because it seemed like a much more current trend. I mean, it was, it was you know, a hashtag kind of trend. But it's been, it's been in the mix for a long time. And this is the takeaway that I have. You know, whether you get this or not, I don't know. This is rehashing of Marxist principles. So they may have the best of intentions. Oh, we're just trying to show how concerned we are for everybody. But if it's couched in, there are oppressors and there are the oppressed in society. And that is how everything has to be seen. Everything has to be politicized. That's a problem. That's just Marxism looking for a new angle to thread its way into your thinking. And I guess if there's any consolation, I, I sometimes remind myself when I see some of the different trends, the things that are catching on, the the stuff that is popular right now that just seems so contrary to uh, not just moral decency. OK, I'm not just coming at it from Here's my Bible. I'm going to thump it at you, um, but more from from a connection to reality. Everything seems so detached from reality these days, which is another mark of cultural Marxism. Because it expects you with a straight face to believe that, you know, women are not the only ones capable of giving birth. Yeah, it's what goes up quickly comes down quickly. So if you're finding it becoming intolerable, all I can say is hang on. Most of this is a fad and it's going to run its course. I guess the question is. You know, how much how much of our society, how much of our culture is it going to destroy in the process? All right, let's shift to a happier note. Today is April 19th. And it's as good a day as any to remember what happened on April 19th, 1775. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that was the day that the British came to confiscate the arms, the guns and ammunition at Concord and Lexington in Massachusetts. And this was the day that the colonists, recognizing the aggression that was being enacted against them, stood their ground. We don't know who fired first, but we know for sure the colonists resisted with lethal violence the government that was trying to subjugate them by rendering them helpless, taking away their arms. Now, I don't think it's melodramatic to point out that, uh, boy, there seems, seems to be a push on right now. We've got a public health epidemic of gun violence. And, of course, the media is reporting this. They've, they've conveniently shifted how they define mass shootings. And so we're being told we've never seen more mass shootings than we're seeing right now. And it's, it's very clear. Well, yeah, it seems like every time some politician wants to eviscerate the government's limits on its power under the Second Amendment... That's the thing they're going to point to. Why we're seeing mass shootings ever. We've got to do something. 
Well, Richard M. Ebling, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous, albeit lengthy, article about how armed self-defense is essential in a free society. Now, some people may not want a free society, but I'm going to tell you for the record, I do. And not just for me, but for you and anybody else as well. The freedom to go their own way, which means I don't want to control people. I don't want to call down, you know, the initiation of force against them through the government because I think I know what's best. Clearly, there are a lot of folks in this country who aren't burdened with uh, with such limitations on their desires of controlling their fellow beings. Richard Ebling says the recent string of multiple victim incidents of gun violence and police shootings of black Americans once again is resulting in renewed calls for restrictions on gun ownership. President Biden has said that executive instructions to various branches of the federal government will attempt to reduce the frequency and possibility of such violence. Now, some of his proposals, however, are simply using the gun control argument as cover for more government redistributive redistributive intervention within society. So when the White House released a statement on April 7th detailing its plans in this direction, one of them called for a $5 billion investment over eight years to support community violence intervention programs, with a key part of it being to help connect individuals to job training and job opportunities. So the Department of Health and Human Services will be directed to educate state governments in better using Medicaid funding to better subsidize such interventionist projects. In other words, if we only expand notoriously wasteful and ineffective government job training programs, gun violence will magically be reduced. If only unemployed gun-using criminals can be taught a nonviolent job skill, they will stop robbing convenience stores and stop killing people in gang-related drive-by shootings. Plus, once the national mandated minimum wage is raised to $15 an hour, there will be long lines, obviously, of prospective employers eagerly waiting to hire former street thugs with their newly certified government-provided entry-level employment skills. Who knew it could be so simple? Now, he goes on to talk about a divided country over gun control, the tragedy of the unarmed victim, the power of armed resistance, which, again, it's April 19th. I know this is very unpopular, but uh, historically... If you wanted to see the worst that government could do, you will notice that every time genocide has been committed, first, the targeted population was disarmed by law. It doesn't mean that gun control leads to genocide. It just means genocide can't happen unless disarmament of the targeted population takes place first. He talks about the taking up of arms against government as a last resort. He talks about guns and American liberty. And says, let us continue to stand and not fall prey to the false idea that somehow our European cousins are more enlightened or more advanced than we on the matters of gun ownership and control. They're not. Terrorist attacks in a number of European countries over the last few years demonstrate that merely banning or restricting gun ownership does not deter those who are determined to undertake such violent acts by acquiring the needed firearms or finding a way to carry out mass murder with knives, axes, homemade bombs, or motor vehicles running down dozens of people on crowded city streets. Instead, he says, let us remember and stay loyal to the sentiment of James Madison, father of the U.S. Constitution, who praised his fellow countrymen when he said Americans have the right and advantage of being armed, unlike the citizens of other countries whose governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, you can find the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There is some great reading. I don't, uh, I don't try to put too many annotations in the notes. I try to catch your attention. If it's something that, you know, you find relevant, I hope you'll click on the articles. I hope you'll read them and even share them with people who you think would, would benefit from it. And, and here's the kicker. This is the thing. We don't have to convince everybody to make a noticeable difference. You only need a small, committed minority of people to whom truth and, and solid principles matter more than accolades or public approval or just simply avoiding criticism. So something to think about, thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out today's show notes. I have been sharing over the last few weeks Paul Rosenberg's series on common fallacies, and, and I still recommend this as well worth your while. Um, it doesn't mean you have to go out there and start, you know, contending and arguing with every person that you come in contact with, but it's a marvelous way to know better how to formulate your arguments and better to recognize when someone is using rhetorical trickery to try to shut you down. And so one of the things he talks about today, this is this is a continuation of other attacks, part five. And he says, this week, I'd like to go through some mass attacks on our thinking. We're talking high cost, large professional manipulations. Now, he says, we've gone through some of these before like the big lie in fallacy number 13. But he says the ones we're going to cover today are unique. They're new, meaning they're 100 years old or less, and dangerous. And he says what's unique about these attacks is that people can be very sensitive about them. Nearly everyone has fallen for one or more of them. And people don't like admitting their errors. As we noted in other attacks, part two, people tend to defend their mistakes, which is how errors perpetuate themselves and sometimes end up at wild extremes. So he starts with propaganda. And because Paul just has such a great take on stuff, I want you to hear his take about propaganda. Large scale propaganda has old roots, of course, but he says it rose far beyond all previous efforts in the 1920s, taking advantage of new broadcasting technologies. Previously, there was mass communication in the form of newspapers, but they were, first of all, limited. Not many people in Detroit would read the newspapers from San Francisco, for example. And secondly, they had to be read, and reading is a poor format for manipulations. People can slow down and reread what's in a newspaper, uncovering misleading statements quite well. Newspapers don't deliver an especially strong emotional impact, and as we've learned, logical errors work because of emotional pressures not because of independent thinking. So propaganda was at first an American phenomenon, but then it soon spread, notably and very directly, to Nazi Germany, along with film, radio, and television. Now it covers the vast majority of the world. To understand how propaganda works, he says it's useful to see a few passages from the book of Edward, the books of Edward Bernays, one of the founders of propaganda. By the way, if you haven't read that book, it is worth your time. It's not going to bore you to death. It will definitely open your eyes, though, to all the ways you and I have grown up being manipulated, you know, for our own good and, and primarily by advertisers, but also in matters of public policy. Edward Bernays wrote, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, it is now possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without them knowing it. Did you get that? To control and regiment the masses according to our will. Who do you suppose that is? 
He says the average citizen is the world's most efficient censor. His own mind is the greatest barrier between him and the facts. His own logic-proof compartments, his own absolutism, are the obstacles which prevent him from seeing in terms of experience and thought rather than in terms of group reaction. Physical loneliness is a real terror to the gregarious animal, and that association with the herd causes a feeling of insecurity. In man, this fear of loneliness creates a desire for identification with the herd in matters of opinion. End quote. So what Bernays was selling then was the ability to manipulate millions of minds at once, to frighten them and herd them to a pre-chosen goal. And Bernays sold propaganda to governments and corporations very effectively. By it, everything from World War I to smoking was sold to the American people. Now, he says it's, what's very important to see from all this is that propaganda succeeds by abusing human weaknesses. The tactics used for propaganda almost always revolve around making people feel inferior. Bernays got women to smoke cigarettes, for example, with two combined efforts. Number one, making women believe that being skinny was fundamental to being attractive. He did this by promoting especially slender women as icons of beauty, along with carefully chosen words. And secondly, by informing women that replacing meals with cigarettes would keep them thin. So before this campaign, women smoked far less than men and almost never in public. After it, they smoked all over the place. By playing on women's emotional vulnerabilities, not feeling attractive enough, especially in comparison to the women shown in fashion magazines. Bernays and his employers endangered their lives, certainly causing thousands of premature deaths. Bernays knew smoking was unhealthy. Coordinated campaigns of celebrity endorsements. Stories carefully planted in the news and other tricks are now standard procedure, but their goal is to take advantage of your emotional weaknesses, getting you to do things that wouldn't withstand a careful analysis. So to counteract this abuse, Paul Rosenberg says you must first of all understand that it is being done to you. The problem with that is the scale of it. It's seemingly everywhere. You may have relatives in the public relations business, and so accepting this strikes most of us as too much, too negative, too radical. But he says the solution is not to get upset by it. We don't have to go to war against all marketing. Yes, a great deal of it is abusive, but we're not condemning all marketing. Just marketing that abuses rather than informs. And we don't need to waste our energies condemning abuse everywhere we see it. First, we must recognize the truth of this for ourselves, then perhaps to inform our friends and neighbors. I just want to reiterate something here that Paul Rosenberg pointed out a long time ago, but boy, this has made a difference in my life. The biggest battle you have is the one with yourself. Okay, if there's anybody you need to best in some kind of a match of wits, it's whoever you were yesterday versus who you are today. Once you recognize the truth, you've won the toughest battle. You don't have to go out and take it out on other people or prove anything to them. He says, once you can accept the scope and effect of propaganda, just keep turning away from it. You might also avoid products that are sold in an especially abusive way and go out of your way to support businesses that run honest and direct advertisements, such as local grocery stores who tell you about their great fruits and vegetables section. For now, though, he says your victories over propaganda will be mainly for yourself and those closest to you. But he says, do secure those victories. Secondly, there's advertising. Now, advertising is related to propaganda, of course, but it's applied differently. So we'll cover it separately. There was a silly comedy film in the 1960s with a very memorable line in it. In a, a frustrated devil says, 
I thought up the seven deadly sins in one afternoon. The only thing I've come up with recently is advertising. Now, the joke is only funny because advertising really can be abusive. As he said before, there's nothing wrong with telling people about what you're selling and even going on at some length about your product or service. But when it's purposeful, manipulative, advertising passes into abuse. And from that kind of advertising and that kind of advertising has a particular model, which psychologist Eric Fromm identified, quote, a vast sector of modern advertising does not appeal to reason but to emotion. Like any other hypnoid suggestion, it tries to impress its objects emotionally and then make them submit intellectually. Now, the model is this. Emotions are implanted with images, sounds, and slogans, and the mind is pressed to submit. This is the mass implementation of fantasies and fears for the benefit of whoever pays the bills. You won't be happy unless you have this. Look at the happy people who do have it. Your neighbor probably has one. Examined critically, These statements are seen as tricks, but if the right emotions are triggered first, analysis may be bypassed and the reasoning mind brought along for the ride. That's not just an abuse of our weakness. It also causes our emotions to fight our reason, damaging them both. Now, he says a first defense against this manipulation is to simply recognize it and turn away from it. Don't watch or listen to commercials and so on. But that's not a complete solution because the modern world bombards us with endless images. Back in the 1980s, the leading advertising magazine found the average North American was hit by a thousand advertisement advertisements per day. And so we'll see a large number of images, even if we habitually ignore them. These days, it's hard to pump gasoline without being assaulted by advertising. A large swath of advertising relies on impressions remaining in our minds over time, like a song getting stuck in our heads. That's the purpose of repeated advertisements. And when the right moment comes along, then you associate with the image and you buy the right product. So how to clear these images from your minds is not something that's been properly studied as far as Paul Rosenberg knows. But he says, I'm going to give you an odd suggestion, but one that works pretty well for him. And that solution is hard physical exercise. The combination of body and mind involved with forcing yourself to run the last quarter mile or grind out that last set of push-ups seems to clear your residual memory banks. Other experiences that deeply absorb you could clear your mind, but he says the physical component of exercise definitely increases the effect. I'll have much more of this linked in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. It's worth reading and fortifying your mind against, you know, whatever else is coming our way. This is The Brian Hyde Show.